Welcome to Cordell and Cordell's Men's Divorce Podcast, moderated by managing partner and CEO Scott Trout, bringing you information for guys before, during, and after divorce, and everything related to family law. This podcast is not to be taken as legal advice, and no attorney-client relationship is established. Welcome back to the Cordell and Cordell Men's Divorce Podcast. I'm Scott Trout, CEO and Managing Partner. And as always, we're bringing you information, topics, relevant things for guys before, during, and after divorce. And today is no different. Uh, one that comes really out of the news in the last couple of months. We're going to talk about domestic violence, and we're joined by Ace and F up in New York. Welcome. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, really, we'll get into a little bit kind of more detail, but we're going to talk about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp because the topic really is the taboo topic of talking about domestic violence and guys perhaps being the victim. I've had the experience of it, and I know I'll share some of my thoughts, some of the the cases that I've had, um, but it, it's one of those, you know, representing men in divorce and modifications. I know you and I see it a lot. We have those occasions where it is one of those uh, instances where, and maybe it's mutual violence. We'll talk, you know, a little bit about that. But it is, you know, it doesn't matter if it's mutual. They're victims, and guys can be victims as well. You've done some uh, research and and uh, talking about statistics. Maybe let's start there. Fill everyone in that's listening and watching on the stats on really male victims of domestic violence. Yeah, thanks, Scott. You know. When, when the issue of domestic violence comes up, uh, I think there's this, this idea uh, that it's primarily uh, violence against women. And, and certainly that's, that's a major aspect of it, and that's a concern, and we're not trying to downplay that at all. But I think people would really be surprised to learn just how common uh, domestic violence against men in an intimate relationship is. Uh, there have been studies that found one in every nine men have experienced some level of severe domestic violence at the hands of an intimate partner uh, in their lives. And as many as one in four men have experienced some lower level of physical violence, slapping, uh, shoving, things of that nature. Um, There's also been studies that showed one in every 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner, which is also a form of domestic violence. The National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey found that 46% of all domestic violence victims are men, uh, which puts it almost on par with how many uh, of those victims are women. Uh, When I found those statistics, I was a little surprised, but being what we do and the the area of law that we practice and the number of times these have come through my door, uh, you know, it did start to make sense because it is very relevant to divorces in general. Um, but custody matters and the family offenses that we, that we represent our clients in. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And when I first started, you wouldn't want to talk about it. It's unheard of. Right. And it's, it's kind of the, the very nature of why we started at Cordell and Cordell and our focus is to kind of break through the stereotypes, the, the things that, um, you know, we see every day that judges are presented with to, you know, I can tell you the example I'm thinking about. And about 20 plus years ago, I had a client who was assaulted. Uh, his wife was the aggressor. She took a frying pan and broke both orbital sockets. And so, you know, we go and file order protection and the judge denied it. 
And so I filed an appeal and I, you know, I went back and the judge, I said, look, if, if I represented the woman, not only would I have an order of protection issued, but I'd be in prison. You know, I'd be charged with assault, probably attempted murder. I mean, like I said, judge, you've got to ignore the fact that, you know, I represent a guy and he's the victim. He said, well, why didn't he fight back? And I mean, that's, I mean, that, that because we to all me, know exactly what would right. happen if did fight back. Exactly. That's the real problem here. Right. And so, I, you know, I think it's such a great topic to talk about because it is that secret that, you know, for whatever it is, you don't want to be a victim. No one wants to be. But for men, I mean, it's a manly thing to not be a victim and say that she beat me up or threatened me or I was fearful. There's the big word. I'm fearful, right, for my safety. How could you be? You're 6'3 and she's 5'10 or 5'7 and she's, you know, whatever, very um, delicate. And, and it's, but it isn't, it's one of those unspoken secrets. And we've been fighting it's, you know, for, for a very long time and it's still really relevant. And I think what was interesting for all of you that watched and had an opportunity to see the, and we'll talk about it now, which is the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, because it wasn't just about defamation. It was about the relationship and violence. Now, I mean, what I thought was so interesting was no one really, I didn't. I mean, I, I, we were just talking off camera. I didn't think about it as a man, woman. I just thought about it as a very kind of violent relationship that they both engaged. They're probably both definitely guilty of domestic violence. So, don't, I mean, what do you think? You're exactly right. And that's common in so many of these cases where they're engaging each other and they're both victims. Um, who's the aggressor? Who's the victim? That's That's not always the case, it perhaps not always usually the case. There's two partners in a volatile relationship, a toxic relationship, and they have these instances that come up, these issues yeah. that come up and, and they get into it. Yeah, and it's not to you know, excuse men's behavior as, as a perpetrator or, or even women, it's to bring to light that there are victims on both sides. And you know, for they live, I've heard this, this phrase, uh, they lived in the shadows and they were afraid for whatever reason to bring it up that I'm a victim of domestic violence. And because of the stereotype that men should be men and they shouldn't be worried about being assaulted and take it like a man. You've heard that one, right? And, so often. And that, right. was, that was relevant. And that was part of the testimony in the Depp Heard trial. Um, there was a recording, I believe, of Amber Heard saying, you're the great Johnny Depp. What are you going to do? You're going to go into the public eye and say, I am a victim. Nobody's yeah. going to believe you. And right. you're going to just be embarrassed. And yeah. we have so many of our clients come in with the same fear yeah. that there's this machismo that nobody wants to say, well, I'm just weak and a victim and that they're not going to be believed. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a really a common theme um, in a lot of these cases. Uh, you know, there was one study that found that 73% of men who were the victims of violence were threatened with a threat of false allegations against them if they went to the police. Right. Oh, yeah, you're going to go tell the police that that I hit you. I'll tell them you hit me first. Yeah. And in 53% of those cases, they made good on those on those. Yeah. Threats. And they did say to the, to the police that they were the aggressor, that they hit me. And, and we know for the most part, those guys going to jail. It, it, it's just an unfortunate reality. Yeah. If the police show up 
there's been a fight, there's blood, there's marks, there's things broken. They often jump to conclusions. They'll arrest the guy. And, and yeah. what do you do in those situations? It's really difficult. Yeah. It's a tough job the police have. I mean, I, but it, but again, it's, you know, this bias that they, you know, we've taught in, in, I guess, in general, we've been talking a lot about this unconscious bias, whether it's on race or gender or whatever it is. Right. And I think it does. It's just a natural reaction. I've seen it with clients where she's assaulting my client. She calls the police and says, he's threatening me. He comes and like, look, I got scratches on my face. She doesn't have anything on her. I'm clearly the one who's being assaulted. And so what they do is they say, well, ma'am, you just need to leave the house rather than, you know, citing, citing her and giving her a citation for assault or removing her. And it, I mean, it is an uphill battle, but evidence, evidence matters, right? You know, I had a case very early on in, in my, my time with this firm where a gentleman came into my office for, a, you know, we, we call our consultations and he was still bleeding. He was still bleeding, bleeding all over the floor. He had scratches. They were deep. He was didn't know what to do. He didn't want to go to the police without talking to an attorney. And I told him, you know, we're going to go right down to the family court, bleeding and all. Don't even bother cleaning it up. We're going to go in front of the yeah. judge. It's going to the judge is going to have to face you, and it's going to have to do the right thing. And like the example you gave earlier, you'd think that would be open and shut. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, um, we were successful in that case, but only after hammering the judge, arguing with the judge, pleading our case where, you know, if it was the other way around, yeah. it, it would have been it would have been no problem. They, they would get yeah. right away, but it, it's such an uphill battle, but right. one that we can fight and should because nobody should have to be a victim and nobody should have to feel like there's nothing they can do. So while it is difficult um, while it is a battle, you know, we can get it done and we'll do everything we can to, to try to help anybody who feels like they're they're being victimized. You know, it, it's the very essence we I mean, we talk about the fight to try to, number one, get safety. I mean, that's important. But to get justice and and utilize the law as it's designed. In reality, the domestic violence statutes, codes around the country perhaps tend to be the most over abused part of the law and that in many parts of the country, it's called ex parte, meaning you go and you file a notice. And so long as you plead facts that if proven true would get you know you an order of protection, you get one. So here in Missouri, uh, my client can go to court and just fill an application and usually without seeing the judge just simply get an order of protection. Now, where it falls apart is, um, and I've had this argument with the judge before, is they understand who the petitioner is, male, female. And uh, even goes into maintenance, where I've had a judge deny my client maintenance who was a stay-at-home dad for 20 years. The judge said, why doesn't he get off his butt? I said, would you say that to the wife? And the judge kind of got angry for a moment. It was a woman. And then she sat back, didn't say anything. She goes, you're right. She goes, if in a real perfect world, I would see petitioner A versus petitioner B, and I wouldn't understand gender. I wouldn't then let stereotypes get mixed into my decision making. And that's the way it should be in domestic violence, with, which matters more than maintenance in, from an immediate safety and protection per, you know, standpoint, because you're dealing with all kinds of things, you know, with that, you know, involved like alcohol. You have an alcoholic spouse. That's huge and most prevalent, I think, that leads to these instances in domestic violence. 
I agree with that completely. And people who live with an alcoholic spouse, uh, they experience uh, levels of, of harassment, of uncertainty um, that creates so much anxiety uh, that it, 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 it leads to a very dangerous household. Uh, if there's children in that household, it, it, it's just terrible. And we see that so often uh, where an alcoholic spouse is neglecting their you know, duties as a co-parent, duties as a spouse, and creating a dangerous situation, whether it's driving while intoxicated or simply coming home or becoming intoxicated and creating confrontations, uh, it creates an environment that can really be considered hostile and, and dangerous. Um, yeah. And you know, people need to understand that they should be taking steps, particularly if there are children in a home, to, to protect their children against that type of environment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same with domestic violence. And it's, what's interesting is, uh, at least in New York, and I believe most states, just exposing a child, allowing a child to be exposed to that type of behavior, allowing a child to be exposed to domestic violence isn't of itself considered child abuse. Right. And it can come out of your hands if you don't do anything about it. And we have Child Protective Services in New York. And if Child Protective Services learns that there's a history of domestic violence, they're not concerned about who's the perpetrator or who is the victim in most cases. And if nobody did anything to protect the children from being exposed, then they're both guilty of yeah. child neglect. Yeah. A child can be removed from a household where that type of behavior is, is prevalent and allowed to continue. You know, alcohol, alcoholism right? as well. Yeah, alcohol. I think many probably watching, listening now can relate the effects of alcohol abuse within a family, within relationships, um, what it does to a human, what they do. They're, they're you know, uh, it, it's an instigator. It's the fuel for fire. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I just met with a client who spouse is mixing alcohol and prescription medication. And it's really, I mean, we talked a lot about a potential for an order of protection to get her out. Um, and it's just a fine line, but it's, it, you know, it's one of those things there's help. There's, there's uh, mechanisms within the system like the order of protection to try to, we talked about a child order protection. Uh, but really when it comes to, because I think as you suggest, even if there are kids involved, and you, as the father, are subjected to violence. I mean, there may be an opportunity and a reason to get a child order protection too. Because if mom, you know, is so violent, not only doing it in front of, in the presence of, or even pretend, perhaps towards the children, that's an issue as well. Because physical violence, I mean, you know, there's, you know, obviously emotional, psychological, and then what alcohol does. But the physical violence part is probably obviously the most dangerous part as we talk about it. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll have instances of, you know, the most obvious, somebody punching or slapping their, their domestic partner, scratching and biting, but also throwing objects or just breaking objects in the house, all of which can be extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, and if that's going on, particularly in a household with children, you need to take steps to, to, to end that situation. So it can be through an order of protection. In New York, we have an avenue through a, a divorce action for what's called exclusive use and occupancy of the marital residence. So you can avoid having to go and get the order of protection, but still have sole use of the home. 
and get custody orders and, and other protections in place. Uh, and those orders can also direct that somebody undergo a alcohol and drug evaluation, follow the recommendations of any alcohol evaluator, and continue to, to comply uh, with random testing. So there, there can be more that's available through certain divorce actions than might be available in the family court. But there's a, there's a variety of ways that we can help protect people mm-hmm. and that you should seek that kind of protection. You know, it, if you mentioned some statistics early on, and I mean, even if they're small, minimal, nominal, it doesn't mean that we ignore it. And it may be, you know, we talk about sexual misconduct. I mean, that, I met with someone years ago who was drugged and raped and the woman got pregnant and then sued him for paternity. I mean, that happens. And, and so it's not, we're not trying to um, diminish, you know, violence against women, but the point is trying to bring to, to light that men are victims as well. I agree with that completely. And sexual misconduct doesn't always have to be as physical either. It might fall in line with harassment, but I've certainly had cases where a spouse will make constant um, you know, threats against their, their domestic partner and, and just insults. Uh, I had a client whose spouse would constantly be telling them how they're impotent and they can't satisfy them and they're going to go do whatever they want with whomever they want. And that can also be considered a, a form of harassment and domestic yeah. violence. I, I had a case mo- very recently, which was, which was very difficult, where the spouse said to her husband that she deserved sexual relations every night and he was going to do it whether he liked it or not. Wow. And listening to it, and I'll mention in that particular case, he, he had a recording of the conversation. But in listening to it, I couldn't help but think that if the situation was reversed and if it was a husband demanding sexual favors from his wife every night, whether she liked it or not, he could be arrested. He would be thrown yep. in jail. Yeah. But knowing that it's the other way around. Yeah. His concern was, well, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be judged. Mm-hmm. I'm a guy and I'm supposed to have this libido and nobody's going to take it seriously. Am I going to go to a police officer and say, my my wife wants to have sexual relations every night. And he's concerned about the stigma attached to that. Right. I mean, violence is violence. It does have, you know, it's whether male, female, there are issues on both sides that, you know, rape victims, period, regardless of gender, uh, that's always the, the fear is, you know, what's what's going to be done to me on the stand when I report it. And so I think the, why I thought this was so and, and really kudos to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. If anything positive came from out, maybe they both get therapy. But more importantly, it brought to light violence for men that they can be. And, and, and he took it. I mean, he brought it bravely. And uh, look, he's probably no gem either. No doubt. But it doesn't excuse either behavior, his or hers. I think that's the positive bringing to it. So with this, what do guys do? How do they protect themselves? What steps should they take? Kind of give them some some takeaways today uh, in terms of what they should be thinking about. Yeah, that's that's very important because we've talked a lot about what can be considered, you know, domestic violence. Uh, But what do you do about it? So 
Um, I, I, I want to start by saying a lot of this is very state specific. I, I practice law in the state of New York. I know states have very different laws when it comes to recording. Uh, in New York state, we're a one party consent. What that means is that either party, if either party is aware of a recording, then it's legal and it can come in as evidence. So if I'm having a, a, a conversation with you and I have a a recording device on me and you're not aware of it, it's still okay. A lot of states don't allow that. And if both parties to a conversation are not aware of it, then it can't come in as evidence. Uh, now, even in New York, you can't plant a listening device. So you can't leave a recording device somewhere and and listen to someone else's conversation. Right. Uh, that would be considered eavesdropping and that's illegal but you are allowed to record any conversation you are a party to. So while I don't like having to uh, advise people to, to record their spouse, sometimes it's the only way to protect yourself. So when, when I have a client come in who describes some of these, these circumstances going on, I let them know that you can record. And I've listened to so many recordings that were an integral part of our case of somebody admitting to having hit their spouse, uh, having admitted that they will lie to the police if the police ever show up. And that was the evidence that really saved our clients. Um, so th they can be very important tools uh, when there's a he said, she said situation. And yeah. we all kind of know where that could end up. Yeah, my uh, client uh, got in a fight on the driveway at their house and she slapped him, punched him, kicked him, spit in his face. Then she called the police and claimed he was the aggressor. We went to the video and said, look, by the way, we have a security camera and they looked at it and uh, they took her away. So, I mean, they are valuable pictures. I know you think about Johnny Depp showing pictures uh, of him, you know, with, bruised red eyes and what was important there is that he took them and he kept them right so um you know it, it doesn't matter how old it is because when if we're talking about a history of domestic violence and a history of these things going on then if you have pictures going up back in time that that will help with your argument down the road um and and it's additional evidence so you know if you have those pictures you, you need to make sure to keep them safe and and note when they occurred, what exactly occurred, and keep that fresh uh, for the memory. Yeah. Um, I, I would also note that you know just keeping a diary of it, it's a shame that these things go on for so long. But if you keep a diary with times and dates and specific information, and you can testify down down the road if necessary that you kept this diary, you took it as the situation was happening the next day, you wrote it all down. Uh, a court can judge your credibility and utilize that as well as, as some form of evidence. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, you talk about contemporaneous is the word we use contemporaneously keeping notes. And, and that would include telling someone, reporting it right away to a friend, a neighbor, a relative, uh, even the police, not something waiting months or weeks, whatever it is beyond is, taking something immediately and going to someone like Johnny Depp. I, it's just, you know, front and center. Um, she throws a bottle, cuts his finger off, you know, gets people involved immediately. Of course, he had to go get medical care. He could have ignored it and just 
you know, laid where it is and done nothing. But those are the things is take action immediately, especially when your physical safety is, uh, you know, at risk. Agreed. And for anybody who's going through these issues, if they're they're not ready yet to take certain steps, uh, I would encourage them to, to speak to a counselor, uh, a professional who they can talk to. And that can also help build a record in and of itself, because a, a counselor's um, notes from, from their sessions uh, will confirm that these were being reported contemporaneous with when the events happened and that he was struggling with how to deal with these things. It explains perhaps why he wouldn't have gone to uh, to the police or, or talked to an attorney right away. Uh, dealing with a counselor and trying to work through some of these issues will also be able to, to help keep a record of when the events occurred. It's so big. I mean, it's just, and you know, as we wrap up, talking to an attorney like you and and just find out what your rights are. Like I said, I met with someone recently. They just wanted to know what they should do, what they could do. That doesn't mean they are going to. And then we can provide the resources, the information, uh, get them to the help that they need. Maybe perhaps, you know, suggest and make them feel comfortable leaving the home if they need to, because that's always the first priority is leaving for safety, number one, and then taking steps for, for law and legal and those types of things. So obviously, as you mentioned, speaking to attorney is, is also an important piece here. Uh, it's, a, it's a very important piece. And, and we're never here to push somebody to do something they're, they're not comfortable with. We're here to provide counseling. That's our very first job. We're counselors, and we can try to help give them all of their options help make them as safe as possible and help prepare for whatever might come in the future. Yeah. It's interesting. I've, I've said that to clients before. When I look, I, I look on the wall of my law license, it says not just attorney in law, it says attorney and counselor. Not that we're a social worker or a therapist, but the point is that that, that, that word has meaning. I mean, and doing this podcast, I think is part of that is to help counsel people in the right way that they should do and the help that they need and get them the direction that they should go. And it may mean that they do nothing in the law that would, you know, you know, I guess, trigger our, our law license and, and, and things like that. So Asa, good stuff. Great topic. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Well, you now heard it. You've got some walk away, some things that you can do to protect yourself. Contact a lawyer and we're available. You can schedule an appointment right on the website online. You don't even have to pick up the phone. Calendar's right there. You pick your city. You can meet with an attorney around the country, virtually on the phone, in person, whatever is convenient for you. Go to cordellcordell.com. You can give us a call, 866-DADS-LAW, if you want more information. But also just check out our YouTube channel. It's filled with things just like this, podcast information. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes as well. And you'll get notified every time something's dropped. So until next time, Have a great week.